I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. On January 6, 2021, more than 850 Metropolitan Police officers raced to the U.S. Capitol to defend it against the mob instigated by Donald Trump. One of those officers was Michael Fanone, and what he endured was barbaric. We all watched it live on television, but in his new book, Hold the Line, The Insurrection and One Cop's Battle for America's Soul, Officer Fanon takes us back to that day through his painful experience and urgent perspective. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on October 18th, Fanon talks about his life as an undercover D.C. cop, his unlikely friendship with a crack-addicted black transgender woman, and why he continues to speak out about what happened on January 6th. There's a part of America that is just never going to accept the reality of January 6th. And frankly, I don't care. What I'm looking for is accountability. I feel like if there's not accountability for those that are criminally culpable, uh, then it's just going to be become part of our political playbook. And in future elections, when politicians or political parties don't get their way, they're going to resort to violence uh, to intimidate others. In this job, I get to talk to a lot of people, but I rarely get to talk to a genuine hero. Officer Fanon, it is my honor to welcome you to Washington Post Live. Yeah, I mean, um, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate uh, you guys put me on and, and let me talk about this. Um, well, before we talk about your book, I want to talk about you. How are you? Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I guess I'm doing well. I, um, I'm fortunate to... Uh, to have made a full recovery from the um, physical injuries I sustained on January 6th. Uh, and I'm, um, I, I think in a lot of ways, I've, I've come to terms with uh, the emotional and uh, psychological uh, injuries I sustained on that day. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you've said many times in television interviews and you write in the book, you, are, you described yourself as a redneck who voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Tell us about Michael Fanone before January 6, 2021. Uh, well, I, I, I ate, slept, breathed uh, policing. Um, yeah, I was a 20-year veteran of the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C. Uh, prior to that, I did a, a short stint as a United States Capitol Police officer. Um, and uh, I loved my job. Uh, in 2016, when I voted to support uh, Donald Trump, I did so as a single issue voter, and my issue was was law enforcement. And I think, like um, many members of the law enforcement military community, uh, we mistook rhetoric for um, for real support. And um, at the time, I saw uh, a lot of the rhetoric used. Um, by members of the Democratic Party, I felt was uh, dangerous, uh, destructive, and I saw it as having resulted in the uh, deaths of quite a few police officers in, in the wake of uh, Ferguson, Missouri. So I voted for Donald Trump. Um, obviously, I regret that decision now, uh, but uh, you know, part of the, writing this book was being as open and transparent as possible. Uh, so that people could understand my experience and, and maybe the experience of 
uh, Americans who um, supported Trump previously. You know, and I, I want to get into um, more about January 6th, but what I found really super interesting was how you, you wrote about your career as a police officer, your nickname, you got the nickname Spider-Man, not just because of the, the spider web tattoo that comes up on your neck. I think you wrote, you wrote in the book, but also because you were known for jumping out of trees and doing all sorts of things to, um, to, to get the perp, to get the, get the bad guy. Talk about those years. And you said you lived and breathed policing. You really loved that job. Yeah. I mean, um, Listen, I, I joined the U.S. Capitol Police just after 9-11. I think like many Americans, I felt a, a call to serve uh, in the wake of the terrorist attacks in Washington, D.C. And, and also in New York. Um, I, I quickly realized that U.S. Capitol Police was not the job for <laughs> me. Uh, and so I lateraled to the Metropolitan Police Department, um, which for those of you who don't know, is the traditional law enforcement agency in Washington, D.C., Essentially, if you dial 911, we're the ones that respond. Uh, and I mean, I was, you know, I think a pretty typical uh, young police officer. I mean, I, I started my career in my early 20s. And I was full of piss and vinegar. Um, you know, I loved the idea of going out every day and catching the bad guy. Um, and I write about that at length. Um, so that people better understand, you know, uh, what goes through a street cop's mind um, and, you know, and also to show the, uh, you know, the progress of my career over the course of, uh, of two decades. I mean, I, I never sought promotion. I just wanted to be a street cop. And, um, and I'm fortunate to have had, uh, you know, 20 years doing what I loved. Mm -hmm. And one of the people you credit, you dedicate an entire chapter to her, and that's and that is Leslie. And I want to read how you start out that chapter. You write on the surface, Leslie Perkins and I could not have been less alike. I was a healthy, fit white cop in his mid twenties from the suburbs. She was a black transgender sex worker, a fifty-year-old woman raised in extreme poverty and addicted to crack cocaine. Leslie stood nearly six feet tall with brown eyes a black wig, and the build of a linebacker. And you go on to write, uh, when I went undercover, I trusted her with my life. Leslie helped me with hundreds of arrests in her own way. She was an unsung community activist improving her neighborhood. I just told folks a little bit about Leslie through your writing. Talk about how important she was to you and what you learned from her. Uh, I mean, listen, I, I was a white kid from the suburbs, like you said coming into inner city policing, uh, I had no idea what, you know, the black experience in America was like. Uh, and I certainly had no idea uh, what it was like to live at or be beneath the poverty line. Um, now I've been pretty close in my life, uh, but you know, the, the idea of having to fight every single day just to survive was very foreign to me. Uh, and also living in, you know, these neighborhoods where I was policing in which, um, you know, individuals are, you know, in fear for their lives 24-7. Uh, you know, violence is rampant, drugs are rampant. Uh, and what she also did was humanize 
uh, a lot of things that were, you know, incredibly foreign to me. Um, being a transgender person, um, you know, being an African-American, um, you know, being homeless at times, being drug addicted, uh, you know, for many police officers, if you, you know, don't have this uh, experience in your personal life, uh, it's very easy to fall into a pitfall of, of treating individuals uh, with indifference. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Leslie was that um, barrier that, that prevented me from, um, you know, falling into those pitfalls. And in fact, uh, you write that Leslie said that one of the reasons why she worked with you and that you became you even became friends was because you were the only person who treated her like a human being. Um, let's talk about January 6th. Uh, you write about how your day was supposed to go on January 6th. You were supposed to get up, go lift weights, go with Leslie to um, go on a go on a, a have her buy buy heroin. But then all of that changed once you heard, um, once you were listening to the MPD radio, the Metropolitan Police Department radio, and the information that Commander Robert Glover was sharing. Take us into your decision to head to the west front of the Capitol and what you saw once you arrived. Yeah, I mean, like you were describing, I mean, that day started out very different from, from the way that it ended up. Um, I mean, it was a, a typical day, at least, you know, in, in, um, regards to me and, and, you know, my life. Uh, but it changed pretty suddenly when uh, I started getting phone calls from my partner at the time, uh, Jimmy Albright. And he was telling me that he had spoken with some officers that were actually at work already. Uh, and this is late in the morning on January 6th. And he was getting reports or hearing reports from officers that there were armed individuals uh, in this crowd um, that was just outside the ellipse at the Stop the Steel rally. Uh, and, you know, there were arrests being made for individuals that were uh, were carrying these firearms. Uh, and then it quickly turned to, you know, this large group of uh, you know, protesters that were there uh, had broken off from the rally and now were headed towards the Capitol building. Um, and the next thing I was hearing was that, uh, you know, police lines had been breached. This is around 1 p.m. Uh, and that officers were um, were under attack. Uh, it was at that point that I made the decision uh, that, you know, I was not going to be purchasing heroin that day. Uh, I was going to be putting on a uniform and responding to the Capitol. And that's what Jimmy and I did. And we have all, like I said, we all watched a lot of it live. We've seen a lot of it through your body cam uh, video that we've seen at various points in the time since. We all know you were tased several times. You were beaten with a Blue Lives Matter flagpole. You had a heart attack. Um, you even heard them say, kill him with his, with his own gun. Michael, before you left, before you left for the Capitol, you write that your mother prayed her usual prayer for you, but this time she said it out loud. And I'm gonna I'm going to truncate it. It started it out, Holy Spirit, protect my Michael, and then it ends with Saint Michael, surround him, Amen. You say you're not a very religious person, person, but you're smart enough to take whatever help you can get. Do you believe the Holy Spirit and Saint Michael protected you that day? Uh, I mean, I, listen, I think that it was something extraordinary that, um, 
spared my life on on January sixth. Um, again, I'm I'm not the most religious person. I, I leave all the praying up to uh, to my mom. Um, but I mean, that's not to say that uh, you know I was raised Catholic. You know, I don't throw up the sign of the cross every once in a while just in case. Uh, but clearly, I mean, um, January sixth, the like you said, it was brutal, uh, and it was incredibly violent. And many officers experienced uh, similar um, you know, similar experiences to mine, and so uh, I, I feel lucky. Um, you write, "quote Each morning before work, I looked myself in the mirror and repeated the same mantra: See the humanity in the people you will meet today." How difficult was it, or or has it been? Since the days of, of January 6th, especially when you're walking the halls of Congress, um, especially with Republican members of Congress, to see the humanity in those, those members who you've tried to meet and who are out there still trying to pretend that what happened on January 6th didn't happen. <laughs> uh, it's pretty tough. Uh, I mean, but listen, I, I think there's a, uh, a difference between, you know, Americans who have been manipulated or lied to, uh, Americans who you know source their their news from uh, untrustworthy uh, you know news networks or, or news sources, and those who are you know intentionally mischaracterizing the events of the day and peddling lies uh, for their own you know uh, personal gain, uh, for their political gain, and for that of their um, you know, respective political party. You know, you, um, Capitol um, Police Officer Harry Dunn, um, the mother of Brian Sicknick, who died the day after the insurrection, uh, after a lot of public pressure and public embarrassment from the speaker, you finally got a meeting with House Minority Leader uh, Kevin McCarthy, and you recorded that meeting. Uh, here's part of the conversation you had about how the situation should be handled. Let's listen. If we don't handle it in a particular way, I don't, I mean, unfortunately, Kevin, I agree with you. The problem is it is political because it happened here on Capitol Hill and it involved a political movement. It involved a group of extremist right wing uh, element of our, you know, American society, which was mobilized by politicians. And that's just a fact. What's interesting about, about that clip and about you, and what you write about the meeting with uh, Leader McCarthy is, one, I noticed you called him Kevin uh, in, in that clip. You also write how when you went into the room, um, you, you scoped out which seat you thought was his preferred seat and you sat in it. Um, um, and you studied McCarthy. Before going into that into that meeting, as you as you write, you studied him like you studied the cases and um, the folks you were going after when you were a cop. Why was that meeting with Kevin McCarthy so unsatisfying? Uh, I mean, what was unsatisfying was, I mean, the indifference that I. Um that I felt he uh, he showed, I mean, not just to me and to Harry, uh, but to Gladys Sicknick. You know, this is the mother of a fallen police officer. Um, you know, a man who lost his life as a result of, 
defending the Capitol on January 6th and the injuries that he sustained in doing so. Uh, and to see someone treat the mother of a dead police officer uh, in such a you know callous way, I mean, it just it made me irate. And that, I mean, ultimately is the overall takeaway that I had from pretty much all politicians, uh, you know, even some Democrats. I mean, early on, my motivation for speaking out was acknowledgement for uh, my fellow officers. The things that I saw in the tunnel uh, on January 6th were the most inspiring actions uh, of my entire life. And I thought they should be acknowledged. And when I reached out to our city council and to the mayor's office, I was met with a similar indifference uh, than that I experienced from Kevin McCarthy and, and Republicans. What, what, what was their explanation with Republicans in a twisted sense? I, I get their indifference. They're trying to memory erase everyone about the, the impact and the import of that day. Well, what are, what's the city's excuse, the mayor's excuse, uh, Democrats' excuse? I don't know. What, I, don't, I mean, I, if, if you're asking me, I, I don't think they have an excuse. But that being said, I mean, I reached out to each member uh, of the city council, and I also reached out to the mayor's office. Uh, the only ones that ever responded to me were Brianna Nadu and um, Charles Allen. I never got any response from the mayor's office or any of the other uh, city council members. Uh, and the only one that was really frank with me um, was Brianna Nadu. And she said that, um, you know, hey, listen, like I brought up the idea of doing something to recognize the D.C. police officers that responded to the Capitol on January 6th um, with members of the community. And I was shouted down. Uh, and her summary was, you know, Unfortunately, you can't underestimate how much people hate the police in Washington, D.C. Uh, and so, I mean, I was left with uh, with only that takeaway from my interactions with local politicians in Washington, D.C. And I think they were indifferent to the officer's experience. And I don't think they. Um, did they didn't see the uh, political benefit from acknowledging uh, a bunch of police officers. Right. But in, in your experience, which you, you write about in your book, you, are, were not, you weren't surprised by the indifference of the public towards um, uh, D.C. police officers. You write about a situation where you're, you're rolling around in, on, a, on a city street um, with a guy who is much larger than you. And a, a, a white guy on a scooter, as you reach out to ask for help, he stops, takes off his helmet, and then what does he say to you? Uh, if I remember, it was, uh, you know, I'm not helping uh, some cop, and then he spit at me. Right. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that. unfortunately, that's, uh, that's part of the law enforcement experience. Uh, especially for uniformed police officers, uh, not only in you know Washington D.C. but but in America. And that incident was um, um, before all the protest, the Black Lives Matter protests uh, over the murder of George Floyd. And when you told your your superiors this, they didn't believe you until they went back, looked at um, um, I guess it was video camera footage, eyewitness 
testimony or statements corroborating what you said. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I, I guess people couldn't under, accept the fact or understand why a, a citizen would, you know, take the time to stop and then spit in my face. Mm-hmm. Um, the, your book includes, the, the book title includes the phrase, battle for America's soul. What do you fear um, the country will lose if the events of January 6th are not fully um, understood? I mean, I, I don't think it's just understanding. I mean, at this point in the game, I, you know, I feel like there's there's a part of America that is just never going to accept the reality of January 6th. And frankly, I don't care. Um, what I'm looking for is accountability. I feel like if there's not accountability for those that are criminally culpable, uh, then it's just going to be become part of our political playbook. And in future elections, when, um, you know, politicians or political parties don't get their way, they're going to resort to violence uh, to intimidate others. Um, and while that's, you know, incredibly dangerous and clearly a threat to our democracy, I think what's most dangerous is the majority of Americans that are just simply indifferent to what happened on January 6th. Uh, and in fact, I keep I keep throwing your own words back at you from your book, but it's so it's so compelling. You write um, about how a lot of folks in the country don't believe what happened on January 6th happened, including people you know, you write, so people that I've known and love, people I still know and love, think I'm full of crap. You don't use that word. I, I, showed, I showed them my body-worn camera footage and they think it was created in a Hollywood studio. There are people on social media that say I'm a paid actor. You said this to Kevin McCarthy, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, um... Listen, I, it's easier to uh, fool someone than it is to convince them that they've been fooled. Uh, and I think that just Americans have a really difficult time accepting the fact that, you know, they were lied to and, and ultimately bamboozled by the former president of the United States. Um, I, you know. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about the January 6th Select Committee hearings. You've been to most, if not all, of the nine public hearings that happened um, over the summer and then just uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago. Um, what do you think of the work they've done? Well, I've been to all of them. Um, I, I mean, I think they've done an outstanding job. You know, my expectation for the Select Committee was simply that uh, they would work as a mechanism to investigate uh, what happened on January 6th and who was responsible for it, and then present that information to the public. I mean, ultimately, you know, I'm a police officer. I'm looking for the final report. Um, you know, what the way they laid it out in uh, in the you know the public forum or the public hearings, I thought was excellent, but. Yeah, I'm looking for the substance of the uh, of the report. That being said, you know, I I appreciate the fact that there was no political grandstanding, uh, that they used witness testimony from members of the Trump administration uh, against him. And I think that, you know, at the end, uh, at least I was convinced that, you know, Donald Trump engaged um, in an effort to defraud the American people. Uh, and I think that as a result of that effort, 
um, that he's criminally culpable uh, and that that effort resulted in the violence on January 6th. Uh, and I think that they showed a, a clear connection uh, between members of his, his administration, um, his allies, uh, and their communications with uh, some of these groups, the Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, and the Proud Boys, uh, whose intention that day was violence well in advance of uh, January 6th, that it was premeditated, it was preplanned, uh, and also that it could have been a whole hell of a lot worse than it was had it not been for the efforts of uh, law enforcement that day. Well, speaking of law enforcement, and as a member, former member of law enforcement, I want to get your reaction to this because Bloomberg News has reported that the Secret Service repeatedly minimized the threats of violence on January 6th, despite evidence of extremist groups heading to Washington. And there was some um, evidence presented in the last hearing about the communication, about just how knowledgeable people were, uh, the Secret Service was, about what was to come. How bad an intelligence failure was January 6th? Well, I think it was catastrophic. Um, I mean, listen, I, I think what, uh, you know, what the Secret Service did or did not do that day was disgraceful. Um, I think that with regards to the agency, especially at the executive level, and this is not an indictment of, you know, the rank and file members of the Secret Service or, or even the Secret Service Uniform Division, but clearly, the Secret Service uh, was an agency that was corrupted by Donald Trump. Um, having that information and not disseminating it to other law enforcement agencies placed the officers, you know, the rank and file guys like myself, in grave danger. Uh, and also, uh, I think that um, you know, not enough has been talked about as to why an agency who's charged with protecting the office of the President of the United States would allow a rally to take place in which they had uh, intelligence uh, stating that there was going to be uh, an attack on the Capitol, that there were weapons present, uh, that there were groups um, that are, you know, well known as being uh, right wing extremist groups who have used violence in the past would be present. Uh, and then the real time intelligence that they gathered that day in which you know members of my department were making arrests for individuals who are armed uh, that were there present uh, just outside the security perimeter uh, individuals armed with firearms semi-automatic handguns ar-15 rifles um, i mean to me as a police officer it it's uh it makes no sense um, a neighbor from the north. Um, this is a, a question from an audience member from Canada named Julia Levine. She asks, are you fearful that another January 6th will happen? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, unless there's accountability for um, for those that were responsible for that day, uh, I, I think that you're going to see, you know, maybe not another grand attack. Uh, in the the way that we saw on January sixth, um, but certainly uh, an escalation of political violence. Um, we've got less than two minutes left, but I'm going to push it because there are two questions I I really need to ask you. The first is you retired from the Metropolitan Police Department after 20 years, uh, a job you loved. Um, why and how painful was that decision? Uh, well, to clarify, I did not retire. I resigned. Um, I think retirement 
uh, would give the impression that I'm, you know, collecting benefits or, or a pension from the police department. Um, I don't collect anything from the police department. Uh, hell, I didn't even leave there with a shirt on my back because I had to turn that over to the property division. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it was it was painful. It was difficult, um, but it was some, you know, a decision that I had uh, put a lot of time and effort into uh, into thinking about. And ultimately, um, it was important to me to a uh, return to full duty, which I did uh, in uh, late October, early November of last year, uh, and then leave on my own terms. Which I mean, if you read the book um, or you read the Rolling Stone article, you know exactly uh, uh, how I I resigned. Um, and now, since we are in overtime, this is the last question. Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who you who you write still keeps in touch with you, sometimes FaceTiming you at three in the morning. Um, she has called you an American hero. I called you one in my intro. What goes through your mind when you when you hear that? How does that make you feel? I, I mean, I'll never um, think of myself that way. You know, on January 6th, I was a police officer doing my job. My job was to respond to the Capitol. Um, that's just plain and simple. Um, I mean, I, I appreciate the um, the gratitude that I've received from so many Americans. Uh, and, uh, you know, when, with regards to the, the things that I've done afterwards, speaking up, I, I mean, I saw that as a continuation of my service on January 6th. And, and now that I'm no longer a police officer, um, you know, just because I'm not a cop doesn't mean, uh, I don't, you know, still take my oath to the constitution seriously. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I'll continue to speak out until, there's accountability uh, and a you know moral and ethical reckoning uh, for what led us to uh, to a Trump presidency and to and to what happened on January 6th. Former Metropolitan Police Officer and author of Hold the Line and American Hero. Yeah. I am I am thrilled to be able to say that. You don't have to accept it, but lots of people agree with me. Michael Fanone, thank you so much for your service and for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.